I've entitled my talk today, Soul Thirst, and I think it'll become obvious as we go along. But the law of God is very simple. It has two parts. You can probably guess them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But you and I make it complicated. We do not know how to love God or even love our fellow man. And yet the law, if you look at it very carefully, is relational, which makes it difficult for us to understand because we are sinners. We didn't choose it. We were born naturally into sin. Sin, as we know from 1 John 3, verse 4, is the transgression of God's law. And that too, sin, believe it or not, is also relational. The law is relational so that when we break it, we actually sever and cut our ties with God. When Adam and Eve were first created, God's love was pouring through them like an open channel from heaven. When they severed with God, they decided they would rather eat the fruit than follow God's, God's command of not doing so. What we don't realize is that when we sever, our relationship with God, we sever our relationship with everyone else. It's like a poison that begins to affect all of our being. It's like that sweater that all of a sudden it starts to, you see a little thing and you start to pull it and before you know it, you realize that was a bad idea. But by that time, it's really kind of starting to untangle pretty badly. Relational brokenness is what personifies sin. Sin is the ungodly breaking of relationships. Sin is like that unraveling sweater. It may small, it starts small, but as it spreads, it gets bigger and bigger. This breaking of relationships is an automatic byproduct of breaking away from God. Sin is the breaking of God's law because God's law is inherently his character. The good news is that righteousness, the keeping of the law, that too is relational. When we give ourselves over to God by surrendering to him, he gives us a new heart and he begins to undo all of the unraveling like that yarn in that tattered sweater that we have begun to do in our lives and he begins to heal our relationships, not only with him, but also with others. He heals our relationship with him first. And when we are restored into a relationship with him, the healing starts flowing out and pouring out to the other relationships that you and I have. We learn how to forgive people even when they aren't sorry. We learn how to uh, figure out how to make healthy boundaries even when they behave inappropriately. We learn how to give people second chances and we learn when not to give them second chances. Relational brokenness is what characterizes a sinful world that you and I live in, but a God who promises to give us new life gives us relational healing. Why do we sever with God in the first place when we know that his love 
and he runs his entire universe based on this principle of love. Well, I believe that there are two fundamental roots, at least the Bible talks about two fundamental roots for why you and I sever relationships with God. First, we think that we are more than what God says who we are. Just like Eve and eventually Adam thought to themselves, we as they didn't need God. We think we can handle things just fine and be in control of our circumstances. Eve believed the lie of the serpent over the word that God had shared with him. She believed and was confident that she could handle the situation alone without God. We feel we are bigger than what God says we are. That's the first thing. But second, we think we are less than what God says we are. When we crash and our idols crumble around us, we swing to the other side of Satan's pendulum and don't think highly enough of ourselves. We feel inferior, that we can't get anything right, that nobody loves us, that we're not good enough, that we deserve whatever comes our way, whether it's whatever badness it is, because we failed again. There are many lies that the devil whispers in our ears when we find ourselves in these situations. But God has said that we were created in his image and that he has redeemed us by his blood. These are the measures of how much we are loved by God and our worth to God. Yet we continue to fall in the trap of thinking that we can do life on our own without God. We measure ourselves and our worth by how good we are at whatever your ex will be, whether it's sports or your job or making money or even whatever. When we crash physically, emotionally, and spiritually, we feel at that point in time that not even God cares enough or can help someone as worthless as me and bring us back up from where we have fallen to. Both of these ways of thinking are rooted in unbelief and pride. Unbelief and pride keep us in cycles and are at the root of all of our sins. Every sin begins with these two things unbelief, and pride, every sin. When you see an addictive cycle going on in your life, something that you are struggling with, you can always trace it back to these two root causes, unbelief and pride. We doubt what God says about us, or we don't think we are as good enough as he says we are. That's unbelief. And the opposite is true, that we don't think we are as bad as he says we are, which is the evil that Isaiah 64, verse 6 was talking about, and that we aren't a sinner in need of a Savior. That's pride. I don't need you, God. I can do it just fine. Whenever we engage in unbelief, we are also engaging in pride. This is what Lucifer did. Lucifer challenged God in that he said that God said he was loving and kind and good. And yet, if that were true, thought Lucifer, how could Jesus be exalted higher than he was 
in status and rank. Lucifer didn't think this was fair because he thought that he was just as good, if not even better, than Jesus. God reminded him that he was not, to which Lucifer said to himself, and one-third of the angels agreed with him, I don't need you, God. I can take care of it from here and even do it better than you can. The moment Lucifer engaged in unbelief about and regarding the character of God and doubted that God was loving, he was simultaneously engaging in pride. This led him to think that if he were God, he would be able to do things better than God. We are no different. When God says we ought to not do certain things in Scripture, we rationalize and find ways of yielding in order to do what we want to do, which go against God's principles. We justify that if we did such and such, it would be okay because we would never do this or that anyway. When we put ourselves on the devil's ground, we will always go farther than we think we will. The reason why is that we have already, when we start thinking that way, we have already engaged in unbelief. When we say to ourselves that we can do it better than God, then this unbelief becomes pride. This is a toxic cycle, friends. Every sin story that we read in the Bible and every sin story that you can relate of your life can be traced back to this cycle of unbelief and pride. They didn't trust what God said, and so they embarked on doing things their way without God. So how can we stop severing from God? If I don't believe the lie that God doesn't know who I am, then I need to find out that he knows me better than I even know myself. Moses felt a little bit self-righteous while in Egypt and got overly confident of his own abilities. By the way, I'm assuming a lot of textual knowledge on your part. If you have any questions about any of this later, I'm just flying through a lot of the text. I'm not reading, gonna read them. But if you have any questions, please feel free to talk to me later. Moses was being groomed to rule Egypt, but he thought that he could do even better than that and become the champion that rescued God's people when that time came. So Moses came up with his plan. He strategized to make it happen, and then he implemented it. When he went this far, Moses is believing that he is more than God says he is. Moses falls flat on his face by killing the Egyptian and has to run and spend 40 years out in the wilderness realizing that he wasn't at all what he thought he was cracked up to be. When he finally, after 40 years, comes to the point that he realizes he's all messed up and he realizes that he could not rescue God's people, it was at this point that God could use Moses to rescue his people. Now, Moses has swung to the opposite side of the pendulum. He now believes that he is now less than what God says he is. When God comes to tell Moses what he wants to do through him, Moses begins to make excuses and tell God that he couldn't possibly do what God is asking him to do. 
God wants you and me to have this kind of attitude. To a point, except that when we hold to this premise, we are also admitting that God can't do what he says he wants to do in your life. At times, we think that we are more than what God says, and we are. And when he, that doesn't work out, we think that we are less than what God says. But we aren't. Both of these premises are rooted. Do you care to believe, uh, care to guess? Unbelief and pride. How do we grow in a relationship with God? How do you and I stop constantly severing from God? There are two ingredients that we need to, for human relationships to grow. Communication and quality time. Sitting, so for instance, if I'm just sitting in the classroom next to the same person the entire semester, but I never talk to them or don't engage in very serious conversation, it's really not going to do anything for any one of us. This is how we stop severing from God. It is when we spend time with God that we learn to trust him. If unbelief is the beginning of all sin, then trusting, which is belief and faith in God, is the beginning of all righteousness. This is what heals our heart and transforms our life and our relationships. So how do we stop severing from God? First, we need to find our sense of worth in him. The real reason why we sever with God is because you and I crave worth, validation, and love. We each need to find our sense of being, which is to be loved and valued by God and not by ourselves. For example, if a person doesn't feel that they are valuable, but then they discover that they are great at sports, they will become prideful and do all they can to excel at sports. They will wrap their entire life's identity around this false God that gives them an incorrect security of erroneous hope. Their success and winning at sports will make them feel good, but only temporarily. At this point, we think that we are more than God says we are. But what happens when we stop being successful at sports or stop winning or doing well at all in sports anymore? We then swing to the opposite side of the pendulum and our sense of worth evaporates and so we begin to look for something else that will fill that natural human void. We might start by looking for our self-worth in something like, say, money. If we feel that money is what will bring us value to ourselves, and then we start making money. We will spend more of our time making money in order to satisfy our craving for value in ourselves. The thing about pursuing false idols is that it will be satisfying, but it's never quite enough. We will spend our money 
buying things like beautiful houses and nice cars because we will want people to see that we have value. When we don't have a sense of how much God values and loves us, we are always going to find an idol of whatever sort we can. And we completely wrap ourselves around that idol. The only alternative to this is we will crawl up into some corner in order to escape how miserable we are for never being enough or measuring up to what we think we should be as opposed to what God believes us to be in his own eyes. In this instance, we feel we could never do enough or that nobody loves us. Therefore, nothing will ever be enough. The bottom line is that as humans, we are wired in such a way that we are worshipers. We were created to worship. The only difference is that we have been given the freedom by God to worship who or what it is that we want to worship. We never choose if we worship. We will choose either to worship God, which means that he will be the foundation of our love and worth, or we'll worship something or someone else. Whoever or whatever that thing or person is to us will be and become our idol, and we will fall down before it and grovel because we are desperate to gain more satisfaction, even though it will never, ever fully satisfy us. It will always leave us hankering for a little bit more than what that idol is giving us because it will never give us enough to satisfy us. Never. And second, we need to find our sense of being loved and valued in God. God wants us to have communication and quality time with us. God is craving time with you. God is craving time with me. God is crazy about you. Isn't that crazy? God is crazy about you. This is what our devotional time with God is all about. Most of us have a misconception about what it means to have a devotional time with God. We feel it is about getting more knowledge. If we just read enough about this or if we just kneel and pray or whatever it is, that we will find answers. But this isn't at all what our devotional time is all about. Devotional time is to find my sense of worth and value and love in God and to be a friend to him at the same time. When you read your Bible, you will find this theme woven all the way through it. Every person craves two things. We've said it, love and worth. Some crave worth more and some crave love more. This is an overgeneralization, uh, overgeneralization, but allow me to share this. Women crave relational items, love, more, and men crave worth idols more. For instance, 
If you hear the word workaholic, you are likely to think of a man. If you hear codependent, you are likely to think of a woman. All of us crave both, but most of us will emphasize and prefer one of these over the other. Whatever it is that you find your sense of love and worth in is what you will wrap your life and identity around, and you will worship it. When that idol falls apart, you will go looking for another idol and switch to that new idol for your sense of love and worth. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says something very interesting. And it's the verse that I have centered this talk around. For my people have committed two evils. Whoa, that, that catches my attention. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, number one. And number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Forsaken me means that they have abandoned Jesus as the only source of living water and have instead constructed, number two, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And this, my friends, is what we call the cycle of sin. We stop coming to Jesus, who himself is the only fountain of living water, and we start drinking from broken cisterns which contain no water. So I'd like to just have you turn in your Bibles, and let's look at four texts. John chapter 4, let me put on my cheaters here. John chapter 4 and verse 10. We're going to do two verses in John, and we're going to do two verses in Isaiah. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, this is the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then just a couple chapters over, three chapters over, John chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 37 and 38. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. Does what? Believes. Belief is the opposite of unbelief. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, right before Jeremiah, to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at two texts there, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then last but not least, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1.
And that says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. That's kind of strange. Don't have money, so come and buy. All right? Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I'm not going to preach on that, by the way. When we wake up in the morning after, we feel even worse realizing that we shouldn't have done whatever it is that we did. We feel at that point in time, we feel that we are far from God and erroneously feel that he will definitely reject us. So instead of running to Jesus and asking for forgiveness and being reconciled, which he longs to do, we run to our own escapes like alcohol and food and movies or even more of the same sin that actually made us feel this way in the first place. This only has the effect of making us feel even farther from the source of the living water, Jesus himself. The solution and what we need to do is to run towards Jesus. When we drink from his well, it will help banish our desire for the waters from broken cisterns. We are in our own desert of life, and the devil will always tell us that the oasis right in front of you is farther away than you realize when, in fact, it's very close. The good news is that no matter how far away you feel from God, he is always right there beside you. So that when you come to your senses, the oasis is right there in front of you. The devil tries to make us believe that we have to work hard in order to earn God's favor and for his mercy. Friends, this is not the gospel. God never orders us to do certain things before we can return to him. Martin Luther found out that no matter how hard he tried to do things that he had been taught to do in order to find favor with God, it left him no closer to him and yet feeling even farther away. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie uh, Martin Luther, even the old version. If you haven't, we should probably have it at this church. It's, it's just, it left an indelible impression on me. But in the point of the movie and in the point of, of Martin Luther's story, he's going up and he's beating himself. He just, he travels to Rome from Germany and he's going up the stairs and he's just whipping his back and he says, oh Lord, and he thinks he has to climb all the way up to the stairs and he's not found any satisfaction and he keeps whipping himself and he keeps going through the motions and he's just trying to endear himself to God. And all of a sudden, halfway up those stairs, his mind comes to that famous text that we know about him. The just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17. When we feel defiled, the source of the living water seems so far away from us, which essentially drives us to our own broken cisterns. God wants to break the cycle, but there is one key. It must be broken on both sides. First, you have to allow God to break you away from your broken cisterns. And second, 
You have to allow God to give you the drink from His living water. When you drink from His living water, it is so satisfying that you won't want to go back to drinking from your own broken cisterns. Our problem is that we want to drink from both sources of the water, but we can't. Whenever we drink from our broken cisterns, it keeps us away from drinking from the source of water that only God can give. Cry out to God and tell him that whatever broken cisterns you are drinking from, I don't care what it is, bad movies, bad relationships, you don't feel remorse for those sins that you're committing, but you know that you need him. Ask him to break you away from those broken cisterns that keep you from drinking from his source of water. When you reach out to God and you're serious, hold on to his hand tightly. If you don't have the strength to hang on, he will hang on to you. This is who God is, and this is what God wants to do. The more you stay with him, the stronger your hold on him will become, which will strengthen you to keep hanging on going forward. You and I have absolutely zero part in our salvation. But we do have a choice to stay with him. As we do, he lets us lift some small weights, some five-pound weights, not the 50-pound. He doesn't start us out on 50-pound weights. Herman, would that be a wise thing to do when someone comes in, a rookie? Ah, let's give you 100-pound weights. No. Start out on the lighter weights and get stronger and stronger and build up to the larger weights. And the more we exercise our will to stay connected, the stronger will become our staying power to be with Jesus. This is how we grow in our belief and experience that he is who he says he is and, who he, and what he says he does. God wants to satisfy you and to fill your heart with abundant joy. But if we don't believe that he can or wants to do that, he can't and nor will he against our will. The God of this universe who creates worlds with a mere thought, if you just imagine that, God can create word, the worlds with a thought or with a word. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be trees, there's trees. <clears throat> The God of this universe who creates worlds with a mere thought can't change the life of a sinner. Cannot. God cannot change your life if you disbelieve in him and you keep rejecting him. God will never force himself on you. He can want to do it all he wants to with you, but if you do not let him, he never will. Faith is the key to making this all work. Believing that God is who he says he is gives him the power to do what he says he will do in your life. When the disciples could not heal the demoniac, the father brings his son to Jesus and who says, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. With tears, the father says, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. If you know that you don't have the power within you to manufacture faith, this is the point at which God can work with you the best.
Why? Because he is the only one who can give us the gift of faith to begin with. Because we are sinners. We can't even manufacture faith on our own. This means that by nature, we dwell always in the nature of unbelief left to our own devices. This means that the only way to reverse this unbelief is for God to put in us his supernatural power of the seed of faith. Our job is to nurture that seed. We need to feed it like Bible study and prayer. We need to water it like sharing with others, and he will make it grow naturally. It is God who gives faith, but he can only do that when we choose to allow him to do that. So what are the broken cisterns that people go to to drink from? Well, we've already talked about a couple of them, but I'm, just, I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to delay us anymore. But, uh, you know, one that I struggle with is food. Um, and it is one of my broken cisterns. It could be music. It could be popularity. It could be sex. It could be ministry. You know, we all feel good when we have gone out and made a difference in the lives of somebody else. If we mess up by doing something we weren't supposed to do, we go out and we do something good in order to make ourselves feel better. If you do ministry in order to atone for your sin, to appease yourself or make a deal with God, so to speak, you are doing the right thing for the wrong reason. You are really doing it for the affirmation of others. This is the exact opposite of why Jesus did ministry. The Pharisees loved the praise of man more than the approval of God. Doing anything right or, for, or good for the, reason, for the wrong reasons in the end is bad news and does us no good. All sin is rooted in motivation. Therefore, God's righteousness is the process by which he changes our motivation. The devil strives to have our motivation self-centered. God is always striving to create a new and clean heart within us to have pure motivations. We perform more effectively for God when we have peace within our hearts and that he has a plan for us. It is not self-centered to want happiness in life. God wants us to be happy. But more importantly, God wants us to be holy. Therefore, since you find worth and love, so sorry, therefore, how do we find worth and love in God? There are two great themes that I want to, a couple minutes, I want to close up here. We're almost done. There are two great things that are woven throughout Scripture that reveal how much we are loved and how much we are valued. These two themes undermine unbelief and pride. They, these are the spiritual powers that God wants to set us free. These two great themes are creation and redemption. Through these, God is saying to us, if you want to know why I value you so much, I created you by forming you out of the dust of the ground, breathing into you the breath of life. At that very moment, you became more valuable to me, says God, than the rest of the entire universe. That is why I chose to give up ruling the universe in order to die on the cross for you. Wow. Through creation, 
and recreation or redemption. God is telling us that we are priceless to him. Nothing is of more value to God than humanity. There is no way to comprehend how much that kind of love is from God. This is who God is. God is love. Creation is a revelation of God's love. The moment he breathed into us, we instantly became his child. It's a miracle that you and I can't even begin to comprehend or explain. One of my favorite texts, and I won't read it, is Psalms 139, verses 13 to 17. Read it when you get home. But Psalms 139 tells us that the moment God had us in mind, he created us. We are created in God's image, and he loves us with an everlasting love. But then, when he first told us that he loves us, we ended up slapping him in the face, telling him that we didn't trust him, and therefore we didn't need him, and then we walked away from him. This was a sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. But instead of accepting our rejection, Jesus keeps pursuing us. Chances are that if we were to be the creator and we had this happen to us, we'd do something of a, repu- of a retributive nature and isolate or ignore them. We might even destroy them and start all over. But not God. He pursues us and promises to die for us. My friend, this is redemption. Not only did he create us, he redeemed us. There is nothing that we can do that can diminish our value in God's eyes. Nor is there anything else that we can do that will increase our value in God's eyes. God never stops loving you. I can never love him enough, obey him enough, or do enough ministry to make him love me more than he already loves me now. I can also mess up so bad, I can't mess up so badly that he thinks less of me or stops loving or helping me and gives up on me, rendering me worthless. These two themes, creation and redemption, are woven throughout all of scripture and as we have our quiet time with God in the morning, This would be a great theme for us to look at as we study the Bible to get to know the heart of God. Look for the messages to you personally. You know, one of the things that I have found very helpful is that as I read the story of, say, Nicodemus, I'm Nicodemus. If I read the story of the woman at the well, I'm the woman at the well. Look for the messages personally to you about how God values you, how God loves you, and how God cares for you. And now, please don't miss this important point. If you don't remember anything else, the Sabbath is a great day to meditate upon these two great themes. Notice how the themes of of creation and redemption are woven in the Sabbath. We were created and asked to rest 
on the creation Sabbath, the day after we were created. And Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, the day after he redeemed us. If we kept the Sabbath properly as it was supposed to be kept, immersing ourselves in creation and redemption, it would keep us free from sin for the rest of the week. Experiencing and seeing how much he loves us becomes the new motivation for us to love him back. And we won't want to hurt him anymore. Because when we sin, it hurts God. God wants to banish and destroy our unbelief and our pride by teaching us humility and faith. When we see love and grace like God, our lives change and we become more humble and more trusting. It's not about what I can do or I can accomplish. It's not about others when they scorn me or when I really see myself for who I am. It's not about what I possess or my status or position that I attain in life. The measure of how much I am loved and valued is the light shining forth from Jesus at creation and at the cross. When we dwell on these themes, it will give us the faith to accept his plans and will for our life, even if it is different than the plans that you and I created for our own lives. As we surrender our lives, our plans, our finances, our relationships, and our possessions to God, he will bring forth the very best outcomes for us, better than you and I could ever dream. When we surrender ourselves totally to God, he either gives us the desires of our hearts or even something better. Sometimes what is better for us doesn't look better in this world at the moment that God is revealing himself to us. John the Baptist didn't get the desire of his heart. He wanted to get out of prison, go back to the wilderness, and be free. But instead, he got beheaded. Was this a better gift for him? Well, we have to believe that from God's perspective, no, it wasn't. But yes, it was. God didn't plan for John the Baptist to be beheaded. And that's the topic for my next, next sermon. Why do things like being beheaded? When you are the cousin and you're the forerunner to the Messiah and you're the one that's given him all the accolades, why are you beheaded? What prisons have you found yourself sitting in for a while? God has a plan for your life and he wants to reveal that plan to you. God always loves, and he does it flawlessly and persistently. In the end, the entire body of humanity will ultimately see that love is the best way to run this universe. 
It is a key component of God's heart. If we let him, God can use our life to prove that he is right. When we love him and in turn love others as we do ourselves. In a most cynical way, even Hitler proved that God's way of love is better than the diabolical ways of Hitler. The onlooking universe stood back and watched these horrors down through history. They watched the cross. They watched the baby killings in Bethlehem. They saw the Crusades and the Holocaust, and they said, nope, we don't want anything to do with that kind of ruling in our universe. You know what? The onlooking, uni- the onlooking universe, all the angels and all the heavenly hosts that God has created, they figured it out. But we're still trying to because we cannot let go of our idols. Instead of focusing on ourselves or others, God wants us to focus entirely and solely upon him. When we see him in all of the glory and splendor and grandeur, yet with loving care, a tender heart, and sympathizing pity, it shrinks us down to size and helps us to realize that all of our greatness and super plans for ourselves are nothing. The glory of God is to be revealed in the creation of man in God's image and his redemption. One soul, let me just read this slowly. One soul is of more value to him than anything else in the world. You are more valuable to God than anything else. In closing, I'd like to read this paragraph, and that's it. It's my last page. However, I just want you to know that this is one of the greatest quotes I have ever found. I got so excited that I could hardly wait to share it with you today. I felt like a kid in the candy store. So here it is. All the fatherly love. Okay, let's just stop right there. How many, can you imagine how many fathers there have been in the world since it began? All the fatherly love, which has come down from generation to generation through the channel of human hearts, all the springs of tenderness, which have opened in the souls of humanity are but a tiny ripple in the boundless ocean when compared with the infinite, exhaustless love of God. Friends, I didn't hear any amens. Amen. Amen. Do I need to read it again? Are you, are you asleep? Man. Boom. That is amazing. Tongue cannot utter it. Pen cannot portray it. You may meditate upon it every day of your life. You may search the scriptures diligently in order to understand it. You may summon every power and capability that God has given you in the endeavor to comprehend the love and compassion of the heavenly father and yet 
there is an infinity beyond that. Wow, thank you. You may study that love for ceaseless ages, you, yet you can never fully comprehend the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God in giving his son to die for the world. Eternity itself can never even reveal that to us. We have one more. Maybe by next time you won't be prompted. Here's the last part of that quote. And yet, as we study the Bible and meditate upon the life of Christ and the plan of redemption, these great themes will begin to open to our understanding more and more. May God inspire us to spend all our waking time meditating upon him. And let's get our priorities straight and recognize that God wants to do great things through us, but more importantly, because he loves us.